Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This midterm election year, some Californians are looking beyond our state's borders and contributing time and money in places like Michigan and Arizona. And not always at the congressional level. They're focusing on state-level races for lawmakers, governors, and secretaries of state. Why? Because who controls state capitals really matters when it comes to things like abortion rights, redistricting, and honoring the results of elections. And the Supreme Court is preparing to hear a case that would give state lawmakers even more power over elections. The struggle to control state houses. That's next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's not a presidential election year, but, quote, the next presidential election is happening right now in the states, according to the title of Russell Berman's piece in The Atlantic. That's because the outcome of state-level races in the midterms have major implications for 2024, for voting access or the strength of our democracy, and why some Californians are donating to candidates in states like Michigan or Arizona. Atlantic staff writer Russell Berman joins me now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So what are some of the biggest reasons more state-level races are getting national attention this midterm year? Well, you know, states are are where it's at in terms of, um, you know, abortion rights and uh, gun laws, but also in election laws. Um, And there is a lot of, excuse me, Russell, you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, the uh, technical difficulties here. <laughs> no problem. We can hear you loud and clear. Great. Well, one of the big reasons is in many of these states, like Michigan and um, Arizona, which were closely fought in 2020, the state legislatures are the are the um, are where the are where the uh, 
presidential election could ultimately be decided if this is if this comes down to a very close election and we see an attempt by Donald Trump or another Republican to, you know, overturn a very close Democratic victory like we saw in 2020. And Democrats in particular are very concerned about a that state legislatures could get even more power because of a pending Supreme Court case, um, which could essentially give state legislatures really unfettered power over election laws, both in terms of the rules before the election and, and there's some debate about this, but potentially make it easier for them to essentially throw up their hands and say, well, we don't know what happened and then elect or send their own electors uh, or a separate uh, slate of electors to uh, to the Congress and essentially overturn the presidential election. And so, you know, we're looking at states that, you know, have very close gubernatorial elections or very important ones, uh, which have been, you know, some of them have been widely reported on in, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona, in, um, in Michigan, um, in Georgia. But in a couple of these states, the state legislature is also really in play. And Democrats for years mm -hmm. have not really invested um, a ton of money or effort into these races and allowed Republicans to essentially win control of these state legislatures by, in some cases, large margins. Uh, and then uh, then we, what we saw in, two, in 2010, they then used that power to uh, you know, gerrymander the state legislature uh, districts and the congressional districts and lock in their power. And so, you know, I looked at a state like Michigan, which on the presidential level, with the exception of uh, 2016, has been a Democratic state, but the state has been controlled in the legislature by Republicans. And the state Senate this year is is very much in play. Um, and so some of these these races that are usually fought on on things like potholes and and uh, um uh, taxes and and education are are not, now we're seeing that they have much bigger stakes um, potentially uh, not only for for things like abortion and gun rights and 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 you know you name the issue but for uh, the outcome of the presidential election if it's very close uh, uh, in 2024 as it was in 2020. Yeah, well, you just gave us a great overview there. So certainly we're seeing that state legislatures have more power to determine things that are hugely impacting people's lives. Of course, after the Dobbs decision, definitely reproductive rights. And that's certainly one of the reasons that we hear here from Californians about why they care about what's happening in other states and by state legislatures as they're making those kinds of determinations. You also point out that the Supreme Court has the potential to give state legislatures a lot more power to determine election outcomes, especially if this conservative majority decides the way many expect them to in the case that's known as Moore v. Harper. Can I just ask you briefly about that, just a little bit more? Basically, the most extreme reading of the case that's before them, if they decided to go ahead and give into this idea of an independent state legislature's sort of theory or idea, is that state governors really would not be able to veto or, or exercise a great amount of power over bills governing federal elections, right? Because they wouldn't be determined as the legislature in this case? Right. It would it would be an interpretation of the Constitution that is, I guess, very, you know, in, in the opinion of most legal experts, 
overly literal to say that legislatures and not the broader uh, state government or just the, the entity of the state uh, would have power over election laws. And so you're right, it could essentially shift power from uh, not only the governor, but the secretary of state, and even take away uh, the jurisdiction of, of state courts in some cases, um, and place all this power in the state legislature. And that's important for, for example, a state like Pennsylvania, where the state legislature has been Republican and frankly is likely to remain Republican, even though Democrats are contesting it this year. It's a bit of an outside shot for them. But the, the governor of Pennsylvania is a Democrat. The governor of Pennsylvania is probably likely to be a Democrat uh, next year and in 2024, because Josh Shapiro, the Democratic nominee, is has a double-digit lead over his Republican opponent, uh, Doug Mastriano. Um, and, and the state Supreme Court is um, mostly uh, Democratic uh, because of appointments. Um, but but if this if the if the six to three majority on the Supreme Court uh, essentially adopts uh, what you reference the independent state legislature theory or doctrine as it's being called uh, then that Republican state legislature would have an inordinate an inordinate amount of power beyond uh, perhaps uh, those other entities uh, that I mentioned and Am I right? You said that the GOP has been investing a lot more in state legislatures over the past, I don't know, decade or decades. So that more than 60 percent of state legislatures are Republican. That's right. And this re we really saw the shift um, in 2010. And 2010 was a wave election across the board for Republicans. Of course, we know that uh, this was the first midterm of the Obama presidency. Republicans took control of, of uh, the House. They gained seats in the Senate, in Congress. Um, but they also, and, and potentially even more importantly for the long term, they swept Democrats out of power in a number of state legislative uh, chambers across the country. And then that was such a crucial election because that was the decennial census uh, election. And so in the next uh, that those Republican state legislature uh, lawmakers who were elected and majorities were able then to gerrymander and lock in those majorities um, in for, for most of the, the next decade. Democrats did claw back uh, and, and won some chambers in 2018. Uh, and this is also, you know, because Democrats, they realized it perhaps too late, but beginning after the 2016 election in particular, they really uh, invested a lot more time and money. We, we mm. saw a lot of uh, these these PACs and, and Democratic groups that were devoted exclusively to winning power in the states. Um, and so they did win some power back in 2018. They didn't do that well in 2020 um, in, in state elections, um, but they're really making a push with tens of millions of dollars this year. Now, of course, the tens of millions of dollars that Democrats are spending this year, in many cases, is just matching what Republicans are spending because Republicans are still spending a lot of money uh, in those races. But in certain states, like in, in Michigan is an example, Democrats are actually outspending Republicans in that state. Um, and yeah. so that's another reason it's a big opportunity. I think the other question is, why are people so freaked out? Who are in a lot of these races for state houses, who are the Republicans who have won their nominations? Right. Well, we know um, a bit about the gubernatorial nominees, of course. Uh, Doug Mastriano, who I uh, mentioned, is uh, you know an election denier, extreme conservative in Pennsylvania. Uh, 
uh, Tudor Dixon in Michigan is another one. Uh, both of them, uh, perhaps uh, not coincidentally, are, are trailing in their races. Kari Lake, um, who my colleague uh, Elaine Godfrey just profiled in the Atlantic, is is the nominee in Arizona. She is, a, you know, a Trump devotee. She's a former news anchor. Uh, she's running for governor, and she is in a very close race and may have the best chance of any of them to win. And now, if you look lower down the ballot. On at the state legislative uh, level, you, you see, you know, just as ex extreme candidates and in some cases more so I talked to, you know, it's hard. There's not a ton of reporting, um, uh, you know, that, that makes it outside of, uh, you know, hyper local po publications on what these candidates say. But I was talking to uh, one of the Democratic nominees in Michigan, um, and she was telling me that there are some Republican candidates for the state legislature who have been very open about the fact that the only outcome that they would accept in 2024 is a victory by Donald Trump and, and that they would, you know, do what they, they needed to do to make that happen. And, and so that kind of, you know, validates in many ways the, uh, the urgency and the concern that Democrats have for the stakes of those elections. Yeah, I was struck by a New York Times um, analysis that said even in 2020, when there were fewer, say, of these election deniers, because it was, you know, 2020, um, that 44% of Republicans in, in crucial swing state legislatures use the power of their office to discredit or try to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. And essentially what you're saying, Russell, it sounds like is that there are more Republicans like that on the ballot this year. That's right. Because we remember in 2020, it, you know, uh, there but for a uh, select few of Republicans who were in positions of power who made, you know, essentially the correct decision to honor the outcome of the elections in those states. We saw, you know, it came down to uh, an election commission in in Michigan, which, were, you know, is a closely divided uh, vote. And, and one of the Republicans voted to, you know, uphold the election there. We, we saw in in Georgia, the uh, Secretary of State and the Governor Brad Ravensburger, the Secretary of State and the Governor Brian Kemp, both of whom are on the ballot again this year, uh, they defied Donald Trump's uh, very explicit attempts to get them to either reconvene the legislature to send a new slate of electors or to somehow deny Joe Biden a victory in, in their states. We're talking with Russell Berman. His recent piece in The Atlantic is called The Next presidential election is happening right now in the states. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. We're going to dig in more to what is happening in Michigan and Arizona this hour. So stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Early education programs serving California's lower-income families, they're facing a shortfall of teachers, upwards of 5,000 of them, according to a new statewide study. So we want to know if this is something that's affected you. You can tell us ahead of the show by emailing forum at kqed.org or by uh, leaving a voicemail. 415-553-3300 is that number. This hour, we're talking about why Californians seem to be catching on that who gets elected to state-level positions in other states is really important, and they're spending more time and money on those kinds of races. We're talking with Russell Berman, staff writer for The Atlantic, about some of these key state-level races. And now I'd like to bring into the conversation Craig Mauger, a state politics reporter for the Detroit News. Craig Mauger, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me. And let me remind listeners, you can join this conversation with your questions about what is happening in state-level races, or tell us if you have paid attention and been contributing your time or dollars to them by emailing forum at kqed.org, calling us at 866-733-6786, or posting posting your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Craig Monger, just before the break, Russell Berman mentioned the name Tudor Dixon. Can you tell us a little bit about Tudor Dixon? Yeah, Tudor Dixon is the Republican nominee to be Michigan's next governor. She is a first-time candidate for public office. She was previously a political commentator and a businesswoman from West Michigan. I mean, she was relatively unknown uh, to most people involved in Michigan politics until 2021 when she launched her, her bid for governor. She won the endorsement of a lot of key figures, Right to Life of Michigan, former Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and most notably former President Donald Trump, and and won the Republican nomination for governor on August 2nd. And what has Tudor Dixon said about the 2020 election with regard to whether or not she they believe that it was fairly decided? She has provided a lot of different answers on that question. <laughs> During one of the debates, she stated that she believed the election had been stolen from Donald Trump uh, of late. She has provided more nuanced answers or tried to avoid the question directly. Uh, it's been pretty interesting to watch. I mean, I talked to her at length on Friday night about this issue, and I pressed her on how she would handle being pressured by Donald Trump in a potential future election for the governor to intervene. And Tudor Dixon said, if the laws are followed and everything is by the books, I would fight for the results to be upheld. So there's a lot of wiggle room in that answer still, however. Yeah. Has Michigan seen a candidate like this um, as the Republican nominee before? You know, this is a really different year up and down the ballot in Michigan. I mean, not just Tudor Dixon, but our attorney general nominee from the Republican side, our secretary of state nominee from the Republican side. Most of these people have never run for state office before. Most of them were not broadly known in our 
state before the 2020 presidential election, and the attorney general nominee and secretary of state nominees were both heavily involved in the push to overturn Michigan's 2020 presidential election, and that's how they gained prominence, and that is why uh, this is very much at the forefront of, of what we're seeing this fall. Well, tell us more about the Secretary of State race then and Christina Caramo. Yes, definitely. So the Secretary of State in Michigan is the top election official. Christina Caramo is someone who in 2018 ran for office to a very small county level position. She lost in the Republican primary getting about 20% of the vote. I mean, it was a resounding defeat for a county commission position. Then came the events of November 2020. She was involved in the voting uh, debate in Detroit. There was a facility where Detroit's absentee ballots were counted, uh, the TCF Center. She was one of the Republicans there who were involved with challenging different ballots. She came out of that event making a variety of claims of fraud, and her claims are very much unproven. And there are questions if she even really understood what she saw was that was happening. Um, but out of all of this media attention she got, she really kind of uh, used the spotlight to launch her political career, to gain Donald Trump's attention, eventually get his endorsement. And now she's the Republican nominee for Secretary of State. Yeah, I understand Michigan selects its Secretary of State candidate in a relatively unusual way, I think, for us in California. Uh, how is it done there? So the two major parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, pick their nominees through a, count, uh, through a state convention. And these conventions are run by the most hardcore Democrats and Republicans in our state. Mm. Uh, you know, a few thousand of them gather on a weekend and they pick who the party's nominee is going to be. And that is why Christina Caramo and the attorney general candidate, Matt DiPerno, had a lot of success becoming their party's nominee because they were speaking to the frustrations and, and beliefs of the most ardent Republicans in our state. So how is Karamo doing in polling, for example? Not very well. I mean, okay. uh, she she, <laughs> she has not been able, and this is the same for Tudor Dixon, and this is the same for Matt DiPerno. They share a lot of common thoughts on the 2020 election, but they also share this commonality that they have not been able to raise money. They have not been able to reach out to the establishment donors that have traditionally uh, very well-funded Republican candidates in Michigan. Those people are not supporting DiPerno, Dixon, and Caramo for the most part. And that has prevented them from being able to make themselves known to the wider electorate in our state. You know, these very ardent supporters know who they are. People who buy into these lies about the election being stolen, they know who these individuals are. But the average voter does not. And in our latest poll that was done at the end of September, Christina Caramo was losing by 17 points to our current Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson. So is a lot of the money focused on, especially coming from outside groups, is it focused on the state lawmaker level, state senators, for example? Is that where you see a lot of the attention and funding going? A lot of the attention has been put on to the state legislature. It's currently controlled in Michigan by Republicans. 
Our state Senate has been controlled by Republicans since before I was born. 1984 was the last time Democrats controlled the state Senate. But there is a real belief among Democrats in Michigan that they can win back control of at least the state Senate this fall. And that's where you're seeing a lot of the money pour in. Uh, both sides are engaged in this, this high-level fight uh, across the state to, to win control of the chamber. And it's one of the most fascinating things to watch. So um, let me go to a couple of calls. Let me go to Shelly first in San Francisco. Hi, Shelly. You're on. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Go right ahead. Hi. Um, I'm in San Francisco, and I'm part of the state's project which focuses on these state legislatures, and they've had some tremendous impact. They are focused on 10 states right now, and they're doing a big push for in the midterm elections. Michigan is one of those states. Mm. They've had tremendous impact. The website is statesproject.org. They've been around since 2016, of course. That's when Trump got into office. So um, they've ra- raised millions of dollars, and they've doing a big push in Michigan right now. Um, well, Shelley, thanks for sharing that. And Russell, it I have heard that you get a lot of bang for your buck, for lack of a better way of describing it, if you are putting money into legislative, state-level legislative races because, because they don't typically see a ton of, or need to see a ton of money to have an influence. Is that right? That's right. It, one, they're you know they're being fought for a, a much smaller pool of voters, right? Uh, you know, maybe uh, a couple uh, tens of thousands instead of on the congressional level, it's four hundred thousand on the Senate or gubernatorial uh, gubernatorial level. It's you know many millions of voters that you need to reach. And you know traditionally, it's been in a close race. It's the candidate who literally can knock the most doors or 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 uh, have its you know his or her campaign reach the most doors. And many of them, you know, in Michigan now because there's so much spending, we are seeing um, television ads on state legislative races. But in many races, uh, in many campaigns, it's not even that expensive. You know, you're not even trying to put a, an ad on TV. You're just trying to fund, you know, mail programs and and uh, other campaign infrastructure. And so the pitch from people like the state's project uh, who I spoke to for uh, the, the piece is that, y- you know, if you give $100 to a state legislative race, uh, it's going to go a lot further than it is in a certainly in a statewide race like senator or governor, but even a congressional race as well. Hmm. So, um, Craig, can you talk about the Kristen McDonald Rivet and Annette Glenn race right now? This is for Michigan State Senate and why it's gotten national attention. I mean that that is a really interesting race. It's it's an example of a, a multiple trends that are coming to a head here in Michigan. In 2018, our voters approved having a independent redistricting commission redraw the district lines, taking that power away from the state lawmakers themselves, giving it to the Citizens Commission. They drew lines that were much more competitive for Democrats and Republicans. And one of the places where we've seen this most precisely is when it comes to the state Senate. Essentially, before these lines, there were regularly cycles where Republicans would win super majorities in the state Senate in Michigan, while Republicans may have lost or been very 
close with Democrats at the top of the ticket. So now, this being the first election cycle with the independent redistricting commission's lines, we've got more competitive districts, including this one. This is a district that draws in essentially three areas of three cities in Michigan, Saginaw, Midland, uh, and puts them together in this district that is now a 50-50 district. And this is one of maybe five districts that are going to decide which party controls the state Senate. Democrats have been using in this race the issue of abortion very heavily against Annette Glenn, who is a Republican State House member. And it's it's just one of these races that, that is essentially a toss up. If the Democrats are able to win this seat, uh, it's very likely that they'll win control of the Senate. So tell us a little bit about Annette Glenn. Would you describe Annette Glenn as somebody who is you know, more on the extreme right, uh, hard to pin down, what would you say? She's a very conservative lawmaker. Uh, her husband kind of gained prominence in Michigan by being a Tea Party activist uh, who often got involved in culture issues. He served in the, the state legislature before unsuccessfully running for the state Senate, and then his wife uh, won his seat in the state house, and now she's running for the state Senate. She was not the person that some Republicans wanted to be the Republican nominee here. There was a businessman who some people felt would give them a better chance in this general election race. Uh, so yes, yeah, she's, she's a very conservative lawmaker, but I think Republicans still feel that they have a, they have a solid shot to win the seat. And where does Glenn stand on the 2020 election? She, she has been, I mean, I, I don't think she's been one of the most outspoken uh, critics of the 2020 election that there are in our state house, but definitely the state house as a whole, and, and she has been part of this, have pushed trying to investigate what happened in the 2020 election, pushing to try to uh, change laws based on uh, a lot of unproven claims about the 2020 election. I mean, this is what what we've seen from uh, the majority of the Republican lawmakers here. Hmm. Russell, I'm curious, how do you determine who gets the term? It feels like this is the term that has been used most often for people who are um, denying the results of the 2020 election. Uh, is it election denier? And how do you determine who is an election denier? In your reporting, yeah, that's a good question that I don't think we we've quite answered. Uh, you know, I think it's more of an art than a science. But you know, I think it's it's somebody who um, uh, who buys into you know who who agrees with Donald Trump. You know, does not um, does not take the opportunity when offered to uh, assert that Joe Biden won. Uh, the presidential election legitimately. Some of them will say, you know, and this is where it gets tricky. Some of them will say, well, Joe Biden is the president, you know, and so, okay, nobody's disputing that right now. Mm. Uh, but did he win legitimately? And then they'll hem and they'll haw. And so what do you call them? And, and you know, I think you can look at a number of factors. Did they call for an audit? I mean, some of them, you know, with some of them, it's obviously clear. They say, Donald Trump won my state or Donald Trump won the election or the election was a fraud. In other cases, they, you know, I think um, if I'm not mistaken, Annette Glenn did support um, an audit in Michigan, which mm -hmm. was, you know, kind of code for for or an opportunity for a lot of people to signal their support um, for a different result, not just a different result, but for the fact that 
the election may not have been legitimate, even though Michigan compared to uh, states like Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona wasn't even particularly, you know, razor thin close. Yeah. Well, this is Snur writes, for your reporter from Michigan, curious if there's evidence that despite not raising money, uh, these extreme candidates, and I'm guessing more talking about the statewide offices you talked about earlier with Christina Caramo and Tudor Dixon, that they will get the votes if people simply vote along party lines, just check the GOP box on their ballots. What do you think, Craig? That's a that's a really insightful question and something that is definitely being talked about among you know, people who observe politics very closely here. Our attorney general candidate on the Republican side in Michigan, Matt DiPerno, is someone that has very much struggled to raise money. He is someone that was at the forefront of pushing uh, false and unproven claims about the 2020 election. But largely in Michigan, voters don't know who he is, don't know his background. And there is some thought that if voters continue to just not know who he is, that he might actually be able to win this attorney general race just based on the idea of uh, kind of a Republican success in this election, given frustration over the economy, uh, frustration over gas prices and things, things like this. Our current attorney general, uh, Dana Nessel, she won her last election in 2018 by three points. She mm -hmm. underperformed Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer by six points. So if Gretchen Whitmer wins over Tudor Dixon by six points in this election, what happens in the attorney general race? It's, it's a it's a really great question. You know, your listener raises the polling that has been done in our state has continued to show Dana Nessel, the attorney general, underperforming Gretchen Whitmer. So a lot of it could be based on how close the top of the ticket is in Michigan. And I'm guessing in other battleground states. And what would you say? Well, what does the message from Republican candidates tend to be that really resonates? Is it about, you know, relitigating essentially the 2020 election or are they focused on much more of the kinds of things you would think state level positions would be focused on? Uh, the the wide majority of the Republican candidates in Michigan are, are trying to pivot away from talking about the 2020 election. Very, I mean, obviously they, they realize that this is not an issue that is going to win them support from the majority of voters in the state. I mean, Christina Karama, the Secretary of State candidate, continues to talk about it day in and day out. But most of the other candidates have pivoted to talking about crime, inflation, gas prices, education. We're hearing a lot from Tudor Dixon, the gubernatorial candidate, on issues regarding parental input over education curriculum. You know, if you raise a question about the 2020 election at a press conference with, with Tudor Dixon, she'll try to pivot away from it or say, hey, we've already talked about that at length. So I think most of them recognize that there are other issues that are more beneficial to them at this point. We're talking with Craig Mauger, a staff a state politics reporter on staff at the Detroit News. And Russell Berman is with us, a staff writer for The Atlantic. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions about what's happening at state races in states like Michigan uh, and Arizona. We'll be digging more into Arizona next. If you are working to try to influence a campaign in another state, a state outside California. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can call us 866-733-6786. And you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour about why these midterms are so high stakes, especially in certain states with the candidates that are on the ballot. Uh, We're talking with Russell Berman, a staff writer for The Atlantic. His recent pieces, The Next Presidential Election, is happening right now in the states. We're talking with Craig Mauger, a state politics reporter for the Detroit News. And we're talking with you, our listeners. The listener writes... The fact that these elections matter on a national level makes it so clear that the Electoral College is a broken system. It's fine if local voters want to vote for whoever they want. It's more than upsetting to realize that a state legislator can subvert the national will and popular vote. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? Email forum at kqed.org. Post us. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to us at KQED Forum. Call us 866-733-6786. On the line now, we have Mary Jo Pitzel. She's a state politics and elections reporter for the Arizona Republic. Mary Jo Pitzel, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. So just remind us really quick, who controls the state legislature in Arizona? Um, Arizona is a red state from the governor's office to both chambers of the legislature, although the hold of Republicans on the legislature is very narrow. They have just one vote margins in both chambers. And of course, in 2020, Arizona sort of uncharacteristically went for the Democratic nominee for president. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that did. uh, And that set off a real firestorm um, in this state. Um, Your listeners have probably perhaps have heard of the infamous, uh, quote unquote, audit that was commissioned by Republicans in the state Senate, where they did um, a recount of all of the ballots that were cast in Maricopa County, which is the uh, where Phoenix is located and is the largest county in the state. And lots of problems with that audit, but when they released their findings a year ago, um, they found actually more votes for Joe Biden than the official record. And yet, that has not, however, put to rest um, complaints about the 2020 election. Yeah, well, I was going to say, and yet the headline <laughs> of your recent piece is, is election denial is on the ballot in Arizona this year. So certainly has not put it to rest. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how and where election denial is powerfully on the ballot? I understand that you were just at a Trump rally in Mesa. Talk about that rally. Sure. So the rally um, on Sunday was to support all the candidates that Trump has endorsed um, up and down the ballot. And it's worth noting that 
when Arizona held its primary in August, all of the the MAGA ticket, if you would, won um, in race after race after race from U.S. Senate to congressional seats to the governor's race, secretary of state, attorney general. It was a clean sweep of Trump endorsed candidates who won in the GOP primary. And Sunday's rally was nominally to promote them, but it really was a two hour Trump speech. Mm. And Governor Doug Ducey is termed out. So right now we're actually seeing two, right? We're seeing somebody who could be new. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And the Republican nominee is Carrie Lake. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Sure. Carrie Lake is a former um, TV uh, news anchor. She left a the local Fox affiliate uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago, and decided to run for governor. And she's come out swinging um, as uh, very much a a Trump-supporting candidate, very hostile to the media, um, you know, contended that, you know, Trump won the election in Arizona in 2020, Mm -hmm. you know, that there were, that there were problems here and she's, she's here to fix it. Wow. And, uh, in terms of just the role of the governor with regard to elections in the state of Arizona, just remind us of what that is. Well, the governor um, serves as a, a witness to the signing of the certification of the ballot uh, of the election results. The official duty falls to the secretary of state. Um, that's also another Trump endorsed candidate named Mark Fincham. Um, but the governor, of course, has a huge bully pulpit. Um, and the governor is, um, you need the governor's signature to get certain election bills um, uh, signed and put into law. So the governor has tremendous sway over, you know, what could happen in 2024. Yeah. And you mentioned Mark Fincham, and we've got to talk about Mark Fincham as <laughs> the nominee for Arizona's Secretary of State. Fincham has been a member of the Oath Keepers? Yes. Um, interestingly, he recently denied it in a, in a local radio interview, but ever since he ran for the state legislature, where he is um, now term limited, um, he announced in 2014 that he was a member of the Oath Keepers. Um, and I had never heard a denial until last Thursday, which um, is uh, which is surprising. Um, and Finchin, more than any other candidate that is on the Arizona ballot this year, has been an unstinting um, uh, defender of or proponent of the big lie. You know, that Trump Trump won, period, is like one of his more famous quotes. He conducted um, public meetings, both in Maricopa and in Pima County, which is where Tucson is located, to go over and unearth what he called irregularities in the conduct of the 2020 election. He says he has submitted evidence of such wrongdoing to the attorney general's office, although we can't really get any confirmation of anything coming out of that, much less if the documents actually even arrived there. He introduced legislation that would have um, allowed the legislature to override um, the choice of voters for presidential electors. Uh, His platform has been very much, you know, election integrity built on the basis that 2020 was stolen. And he really hasn't backed off from that, unlike many of the other candidates. Yes. And of course, if he became Secretary of State, he'd oversee all of the 
elections, the, the infrastructure, the processes and certification as well, as you alluded to earlier. Just another note, he was at the January 6th uh, insurrection, <laughs> yeah. though he says that he did not actually enter the Capitol building. Is that right? Correct. He was there to give a speech um, at a at a rally that got canceled because of, it was a very confusing day. Um, and he wound up joining the crowd and marching down to the Capitol. Um, and from the photos that he took and tweeted out, um, it looks like he got pretty close, but there has been no evidence that he entered the Capitol. And okay. about a couple of weeks ago, he did um, out of the blue, note that he has been interviewed by both the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice regarding January 6th. He says it's been as a witness um, that that's all that they're looking for is for him as a witness. But we had we cannot get any testimony out of him or any further details, nor out of the committee or DOJ. So Mary Jo, how is he doing? How's How are Arizona voters receiving him? Um, he's the Secretary of State's race is very tight. Um, there, uh, his a Democratic opponent, um, Mark. Uh, I'm sorry, his Democratic opponent is Adrian Fontes, and the latest poll showed the Democrat up by about two points. Um, so we'll see. You know, Arizona is a red state, and as one of your previous guests, you know, pointed out, there is a tendency to just vote the party line down the ballot. Um, so. This one will um, probably go into overtime. Arizona has a pretty strict recount um, margin as well. And I know that the current Secretary of State's office is bracing for a lot of recounts in several races. It, really quickly, how is Carrie Lake doing against Katie Hobbs? Oh, that one is a toss-up. It's a total toss-up. So yeah. what have either of these folks said about if they, if the outcome of the election, especially if they lose? Um, you know, well, if there's no evidence of any impropriety or wrongdoing, um, they, they will accept it. Um, but again, as one of your previous guests said, there's a lot of nuance in there. There is no, um, from the Republicans, there is no blanket statement that I'll accept the outcome, period. Um, it, it's very conditional because they are suspicious of, you know, something could go wrong from fake ballot paper, which um, Fincham has talked about to um, mail-in voting not being reliable. Hmm. We're talking with Mary Jo Pitzel, reporter for the Arizona Republic. We're also talking with Craig Mauger, state politics reporter for the Detroit News, and Russell Berman, a staff writer for The Atlantic. You, our listeners, are weighing in. Let me get a few of your comments, more of your comments in here. Connor writes, the Moore v. Harper case is really terrifying. Looks like it could really shut down representative democracy in our country. What does your guest think would be the outcome if it passes the Supreme Court. Uh, well, what do you think, Russell Berman? Well, you know, it's an open question, but what the you know Democrats and also you know legal experts fear is it will just give uh, you know free reign to legislatures that, as we've dis discussed, are disproportionately controlled by Republicans and in some cases by fairly wide margins to pass. Uh, election laws that they otherwise uh, either would not be able to pass or that would that would get struck down by the courts. And it also so that, you know, look at, at Pennsylvania, um, 
uh, where the legislature is Republican. Look at North Carolina, where the legislature is a Republican. As we've mentioned, Arizona is a is a very uh, close state. Wisconsin, the legislature is re Republican. So a lot of these, Georgia as well. And so the specific laws that they might pass, um, you know, could deal with you know what what most people consider voter suppression, really restricting um, ballot access. And, and they would have, again, freer reign to do so. There would be fewer limits. The state courts would have less power to um, to strike them down. And the state officials like the attorney general, like the, uh, the secretary of state or the governor would have less wiggle room to interpret them uh, in a way that expands you know, ballot access. Um, and then there's a bigger debate over um, over whether this would give them freer reign to essentially subvert the election after the votes uh, were cast. But, um, you know, that's the big fear based on what was attempted, uh, you know, in 2020. We're talking about the midterm elections, but not in California, in other states because of the stakes for our democracy. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Craig, I'm curious if the national attention that these, especially the state house, the state legislature races are getting, if you think they are helpful to the candidates who are trying to maintain that the 2020 election was fairly decided uh, and so on, or do you think that the added pressure of the national spotlight has been harder on one candidate or the other, or one party or the other? I would say that Democrats in the state of Michigan have, have benefited uh, greatly from the national attention. I mean, if you look at the fundraising that the legislative candidates have done, the caucuses, even the incumbent Democrats at the top of the ticket in this state, they have seen a large uh kind of swarm of money from donors across the country. I mean, I remember when I first started working in Lansing uh, a decade ago, you would not see this kind of outside money pour in from grassroots donors, but this ability to do digital fundraising, this ability of candidates mm -hmm. on both sides of the aisle to go on cable news and reach national uh, national supporters. I mean, our, our governor, Gretchen Whitmer, has really built a following in states all over the country that has allowed her to raise a record amount of money for her re for her reelection bid. And you've seen that up and down the ballot uh, of all these people running for state offices. Well, Leo writes, I'm wondering if politicians use gerrymandering as a talking point for state elections. I don't know, Mary Jo Pitzel, if you have any insight into whether that's actually a talking point? Um, not a whole lot. Arizona has an independent registering commission. It's into its third cycle. And they uh, they tend to draw lines that um, are subject to gerrymandering um, uh, complaints and certainly aren't immune from that happening. But that isn't so much the discussion um, as as it is the quality of the candidate that's coming out of each district. And any moderate Republican who you know, tried to run for office this last time and, and embraced the idea, the controversial idea that Joe Biden won in Arizona and won the presidency, um, they didn't fare well. Hmm. 
Well, Amy writes, I moved to Montana 45 years ago, and for the first 20 years I lived here, Montana was a purple state. We had Democratic governors, U.S. Congress members, and state legislators, and they worked together collaboratively for the common good. It has changed so drastically, and Montana now is as divisive as all the other red states. I feel it boils down to money in politics. Why haven't national Democrats put more energy into ending Citizens United and extreme campaign funding? I mean, Russell, you were saying that they have gotten the message, especially as of 2016. But do you have any thoughts on what Amy's saying here in terms of Democrats putting more energy into this? Uh, you know, it's a complicated question because Democrats, you know, immediately after that ruling uh, that was a little more than a decade ago, they did, you know, put a lot of effort into um, responding to it. Um, but of course, Democrats uh raise money and spend money too. And when it's to their advantage, um, they will do so more than Republicans. They will also do, you know, spend, raise and spend dark money and and do a lot of the same things that, that they criticize Republicans for. So it's hard um, it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to discern whether, on the state legislative level in a state, for example, like M Montana, whether the Citizens United. Um, I just don't know enough to to know if 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 it's had a specific impact. But the you know where you might see in in Michigan, you know, we're talking about candidates and and uh, whether voters are just voting for the party or voting for um, the candidate in a state legislative race. It's often been the party. It's kind of like you either personally know your state legislature legislator uh, because, you know, they're in and about the community or, you know, you have no idea who they are. And so you're, you know, they're very low on the ballot relative to Senate and governor and all these other races. And so it's it'll be interesting to see if all the money that Democrats are now spending can sort of change that dynamic um, in a state like Michigan where, uh, where voters might actually vote for the candidate in these races, as opposed to just the Republican or the Democrat, because as was mentioned earlier, the fear is that in a midterm year with a Democratic president, we know that the history is that it usually favors the, the party out of power, that would be the Republicans. And so if they're just voting by party, um, that could be a problem and, and that could, uh, you know, hurt the Democratic efforts in these in these uh, down ballot races. We just have a minute left, Russell, but I am curious about you. You mentioned this a little bit at the top when we were talking, but the Democrats are also really needing besides trying to flip, say, the Michigan state legislature. They're really needing to hang on to the ones they already have. Right. They do have to invest quite a bit in that. That's right. And, and that's been the source of some uh, light tension, uh, shall we say, between the, the main party organ, the Democratic Legislative Cam Campaign Committee, um, and some of these outside groups, which have mounted a much more offensive campaign to try to take back these uh, legislative chambers in Michigan and Arizona and elsewhere, whereas the uh, the official party Oregon is like, look, we can't forget about Minnesota, where one of the uh, chambers is held by Democrats and is at risk of going Republican. We can't um, uh, take for granted Maine, where the state legislature is also Democratic, but uh, Republicans are making a run. Um, and there's a few other states. And so and Nevada is a, another big example there. And so that's going to be, uh, you know, interesting. It's entirely possible that Democrats could win back the Michigan State Senate, but lose uh, one or both chambers of the Nevada state legislature, for example. So it could end up being a little bit of a wash, and it could end up forcing them to worry about uh, some of these other states. 
Well, Russell Berman with The Atlantic, thank you very much. And also Craig Mauger of the Detroit News and Mary Jo Pitzel of the Arizona Republic. We'll certainly be watching the outcomes of those races there as well as in our own state. So thank you. And thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.